My name is Dave, as Dr. Halstead said, and this is my wife, Stacy. And uh, we have four kids, if you can bring up the next slide. Um, our kids are Caden, Makaira, Elias, and Zoe. They're all adopted from Ethiopia. And uh, we are alumni of Masters. And we uh, wanted to come here today and talk to you about what it looks like to go out from Masters uh, into the mission field. And so, as uh, Dr. Halstead said, we uh, are in Cameroon, Africa. So on the next slide is a, a map there. And our job there, our specific job is to work as Bible translators. We work with a people group that's called the Kwakum, or sometimes we say Bakum. Um, apparently the French had a hard time saying Kwakum and so they changed it. But uh, if you look at the next slide, this is just a picture of some of the, of the Kwakum people. There's about 10,000 of them that live in about 20 villages right in the area that we live in. They don't, not only do they not have the Bible, they actually don't have a written language at all. So our job for our first term has to go, been to go in, to move in, to live with them in a village, to learn their language, analyze their language. We're doing that some more of that now. Then we're going to go back and we're going to help them learn how to read their own language and we're going to help them translate the Bible. Um, does that sound like a lot to you guys? It uh, seems like a lot to me too. And um, we're going to tell you a little bit when you look at the big picture, it's, it's, it can be pretty overwhelming, and we're going to tell you a little bit about what that process looks like, but we thought we'd let you get to know a little bit more about us and how we got to that stage. Um, Dr. Halstead introduced it, um, but we're going to just talk about how God led us to, to what we're doing now. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here. Um, so I came to Masters having grown up in a Christian home. I became a Christian very young, but I just didn't think of um, kind of any life outside of America and even just my own high school and circle of friends. But then I came here to Masters and that I was forced to think of those outside of my comfort zone because of weeks like this, really. I started taking Bible classes like many of you are taking. I became a member of Grace Community and sat under remarkable teaching, and I just couldn't get enough of the Word of God. And so I was growing in my knowledge of Scripture, of theology, but then one day I came to chapel, and I heard a sermon that very much troubled me. We can go to the next slide, I believe. There's a verse we can put up. If not, you can open your Bibles to Romans 1, 18 through 20. I'll read it now. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." I remember the man preaching that day went on to explain that the world is without excuse before God whether or not they've heard of Jesus because God has revealed his character in creation. But left to ourselves, we don't honor God. We don't give glory to God. We don't give thanks to God. And then he showed us a map of all the places that had little to no Christian witness and explained that unless somebody goes to them, they will not believe in Christ on their own. They will not be saved from their sin and they will go to hell and they are without excuse. I actually thought maybe I misunderstood that chapel um, because I, uh, I, it's just not something that I had grown up with. Um, but the more that I studied the scriptures, the more that I can't deny that um, 
um, all of us are, are um, guilty before God, and the Lord chooses to um, save some through the preaching of the gospel. It was really during that time that God just opened my eyes to how privileged I was. So I was feasting every day on the word of God. I was enjoying excellent preachers. I had, you know, 130 translations, uh, versions of the Bible in, you know, my library here on campus. I had friends praying for me. And all the while, there were people who were living, who were being born, often into poverty, dying in their sins and going to hell without somebody to call them to repentance. And it didn't seem fair that I had so much when others had so little. So soon after, uh, thanks to the recommendation actually of Dr. Halstead, I changed my major to Bible. I was a music major. I changed my major to Bible and I took a class on church planting. We had an adjunct professor here at that time named Brad Buser, who was a return missionary from Papua New Guinea and told us all about missions. But I think his secret agenda was to get us to go to the mission field because I remember just him saying, you know, what, what good reason do you have to stay home when so much of the world is without Christian witness? And at that point, I thought, well, I'll support other people to go, but I'm just not cut out for that. But just... Week after week, he just kept on insisting that unless we have a good reason to stay home, we should go. And so it was at that point where I committed my life to the mission field. I felt like I was available. I was young. I was healthy. I was single. And so um, I committed my life to the field. And then after that, I feel like the Lord really grew in me a passion for missions. Like Dr. Halstead said, um, I committed my life to missions, and soon after I met Dave, and um, he, you know, was and is a very godly man, but when I asked him, you know, well, what do you want to do with your life, he said that he wanted to work in Hollywood. Yeah. So um, I was studying here at Masters. I was a Bible major, actually, but I was a double major in communications, electronic media, and my goal was to go and work in Hollywood as a sound engineer. And when I first met Stacy, and she said she wanted to not only go into missions, she's talking about tribal missions. And I just thought, that sounds like an awesome thing for, for you to do. Um, but there's just no way. You know, I want to do film, and you need electricity for film. And that's just not going to happen. Um, now, that being said, I, I was raised in a Christian home, too. And I, I cared about the lost. And actually, I saw me going into a career in Hollywood as a Christian going into a dark place. And uh, so at that point, we had very different directions in one sense. But our hearts were united in Christ and knowing that Christ is the only solution for the lost, whether that be the lost in Hollywood or the lost overseas. I just didn't really know how those things could, could really work together. So we broke up, actually. Um, I sought counsel from Dr. Halstead and many friends and had, you know, spent time in prayer and all of that. Um, but basically, my college roommate took me out on a walk and said, Stacy, you're a lot better with Dave. You're just a lot nicer. You guys are. <laughs> she did. And she was right. And she just said, you know, the glory of God is ultimate. And I think that you and Dave would bring God more glory together than apart, whether that be here or overseas. And you really need to marry him. And um, yeah, so basically at that point, I thought I, in clean, with a clear conscience, I thought she was right. And so we ended up getting married. But the Lord, the Lord was still... Um, 
convincing me that I couldn't give up missions, really. And so um, I remember just praying and praying that God would give Dave a passion for the mission field and also that he would hate working in Hollywood. So we got married, and uh, a few months, for a few months after we got married, I started working, a, a interning at a sound studio in Burbank, and um, I think this is completely unrelated to her prayers, but uh, I really hated it, and um, I, I found that Hollywood is a dark place, that's what I was expecting it to be, but I also felt really pulled to compromise um, for the purpose of job advancement, and I, I just... I just became very well convinced I didn't want to spend my rest, the rest of my life doing that. Um, but of course, that, that kind of led, left me with a void. I had just pursued film for four years, and I didn't know what to do. And I knew I had a wife who cared about missions, and I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't feel like the, the pastor type, and I always thought that missionaries were just pastors that did it overseas. And so I didn't know what that would look like. And so we talked at that point and just asked, if we were going to take a next step towards missions, what would that be? And we felt like we wanted to know the Bible better at that point. And so that's how we ended up going to the Southern Baptist Seminary in, in Louisville. And it was really at Southern that God changed me. Um, I was studying the, the Word of God very in-depth every single day uh, with really great professors, just like I was here. Um, but I also had a really godly wife next to me who was encouraging me. And um, I, the Word of God just invaded me. And there was sin that was in my life that I hadn't been repenting of. And God brought that to light, and he gave me repentance. And then... Someone said to me one time that when you get married, you start to love the things that your spouse loves. And I think that's true of God too. The more that you know God, the more you care about what he cares about. And the more you hate what he hates. That's where the repentance came in because I was hating more of what God hated. And so over and over again, what started coming to my mind as I'm studying, as I'm reading the word of God, as I'm seeing the Bible as a whole, is that God cares about the nations. And um, during this time, we took a hermeneutics class at Southern, and we had to read this book. It was called The Journey from Text to Translations. It was a pretty boring book, actually, very historical. Um, but what we found out in the middle part is all these guys that died so that we could have the Bible in our language. And so we felt just so thankful for that. And um, we, we they got this idea. Stacy had had a roommate who was, in, who was wanting to go into Bible translation. So we thought maybe we should explore and see if there's even a need for Bible translation. Um, I figured after a couple thousand years from the close of the canon, we've got that job done, probably, or at least close. And so what we found out, and, and uh, Joe mentioned this a minute ago, but you can bring up the next, it's like two slides ahead, yeah. So there's around 7,000 languages in the world today. These are living, active languages. This isn't like including Latin. Um, and then if you looked at the next slide, we have 9% of those languages in living, active languages in the world today that have the entire Bible. So that's 636 languages in the world today that have the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you look at the next slide, you can see there are some languages that have the New Testament, a good amount of them. There's a good amount of them that have portions of the Bible. But like Joe said, there are 1,800 languages, more than 1,800 languages today that, that don't have a single word. And these aren't just languages. These are languages that are still alive, that are still being used, and people who do not have access to God's word. 
And so Stacy looked online, found these statistics, and we were thinking about Bible translation. And we walked away from that thinking about, we looked up also how many Bible translations we have in English, like we saw today. And our response to that is we just felt really privileged. And I, being back in the States now for a few months, I've realized that we're using the word privilege now in a different way than before. And I think most of the time when people are using this word privilege, they're, they're wanting us to feel guilty. And I don't think that's the biblical response when we see privilege. I think that a biblical response when we see privilege, when we see all these Bibles that we have is thankfulness. And so that's how we felt at the time. We just felt really thankful. And we, we felt thankful that there were these guys that, that died, even though they didn't know who we were. They died so that we could have the Bible in a language we could understand. Um, and we felt thankful for this wealth of resources we had. And we just asked God, like, how can we share this? And at that time, we prayed a prayer that was, God, we're willing to be Bible translators if you would make us able to be Bible translators. And that was actually a really big prayer. Um, both Stacy and I had taken a linguistics course here with Professor Suzuki, and I had to drop it because I was failing. And so neither of us were walking into this thinking we're really good at languages. Um, but we prayed this prayer. We said, Lord, if you'll give us the, the, the grace to take the next step. And the next step was Hebrew. We hadn't taken Hebrew yet. We'd taken Greek. Um, and so we, we said, Lord, if you'll help us to pass Hebrew, we'll just, we'll just take it to the next step. And through much weeping and gnashing of teeth, we passed Hebrew. We even did well in Hebrew. And uh, as things have progressed just step by step, we've just been asking for God's grace for each step. Um, so after Hebrew, we finished seminary, we adopted kids, we did support raising, we studied linguistics, we then studied French, and now we're in Cameroon. And each of the steps along the way, we've just been asking that God would give us the grace for that next step. Um, not because of, of who we are, not because of the gifts that we already had, but we've been asking God to give us gifts that we didn't have. And um, so really what started for me in the beginning is just kind of another option. Like I, I'm not gonna do films, so I, I'm gonna pursue another option that would be good for my life. Is really just a, a passion that I have, even such that I kind of have panic attacks if I think about what would happen if we had to come back to the States because that's where my heart is. That's where I wanna be. And that's just a testimony to the, the answer that God answers prayer. And, um, and it wasn't for me, uh, just as another emphasis here, just, it wasn't for me, it wasn't like a light shining from heaven. It wasn't some, some experience. It was just a process in which, which God brought my heart to that. Uh, we wanted to just kind of give you an idea of what the next steps looked like for us. So like I said, we did, uh, we took, went to seminary, adopted kids, support raising, linguistics, and then we moved to France. About, uh, if you look to the next slide or two slides, that's where we lived, which was awesome. Um, very beautiful place in the Alps. Um, about the majority of Cameroon speaks French as a, as a trade language. So we knew we were gonna have to learn French. Um, so if you look at the next slide, our kids, they went to a French preschool while we were there and Stacy and I were just fully immersed in a French school. The next slide is uh, our graduation. So just to prove that we did it. Um, <laughs> And we found that the best way to learn a new language is full immersion. And so that's what we did. So we went to school in French. We bought our groceries in French. We tried to talk to our neighbors in French. And all along the way, we found out that I found out, at least for me, the way you learn a new language is to make really bad, embarrassing mistakes. And then you get corrected. And then you hopefully never make that mistake again. That's how language learning works. 
So just as an, experience, as an example of this, one of, the, one of the missionaries who actually had gone to France to minister to French people was putting on a, a camp for learning American football. And uh, so they were doing some sort of exercise. I'm not a sports guy, so I don't know this stuff. But it had something to do where they were doing this and they had to get really low to the ground. And so he was just over and over again yelling at these guys. And he was saying, baiser les fesses, baiser les fesses. And he thought he was saying, baisser les fesses, which means get your hindquarters down low to the ground. But what he was really saying, baiser les fesses, means kiss your hindquarters. And so just over and over again, just that difference between a Z and an S, baisser les fesses, baiser les fesses, just that little difference means the difference between lower your hindquarters to the ground and kiss your hindquarters. And actually nobody corrected him for a very long time. So he just kept saying that over and over again. But again, that's how you learn, and they do correct you, and then once you realize what you did, you just move on, and you hope you never make that again, make that mistake again. So learning any new language is hard, everyone will tell you that, but what compared to moving in and learning the Bakum language, French was a piece of cake. We had textbooks, we had teachers, we could listen to French on the radio, we even had a software program you could speak into, and it would tell you if your accent was good or not. Um, like I said, with Bakum, there's no written language at all, and so we... We had to move into the, the village and just try to learn an unwritten language. And Stacy's going to share with you a little bit about what that looked like. Well, we were fortunate to get a language partner that was bilingual. So he spoke French and Bakum. And we started playing games like you would play with children. So um, we started with games like Simon Says. So he would say, sit down, stand up, run, you know, run quickly, run slowly. And we would follow those instructions. And then we advanced to a game like Go Fish, where we learned our terminology to go to the market. So we'd say, you know, do you have a picture or whatever of tomatoes for 300 francs. Yes, I do. Here you go. So just very, very simple things. And then like Dave mentioned, we would go out into our village every evening and just kind of make terrible mistakes. But you just have to do that. So one of the greatest challenges that we've been facing in language learning is the fact that this language that we're studying is a tonal language. So what this means is that if I were to go to a funeral and say, ni ne shong, Meaning, I am sad, what I actually said was I have a road. Because shong, I'm sorry, shong means sad, but shong means road. So you see in English and other languages like English, we use consonants and vowels to affect our meaning, like hat and bat. These are two different words because their first two consonants are different. But in Bakum, they use consonants, vowels, and tone to affect meaning. Another example, you can turn to the next slide, is how this affects Bible translation. So if you look up at the screen here, you'll see three sentences that in our eyes look identical. Let me read the first one to you. Yesu Meshe. That means Jesus came two weeks ago. The second one, Yesu Meshe. That means Jesus came in the past. The third one, Yesu Meshe. That means Jesus never came at all. So the pitch of my voice on the may, I love this response because this is my life. This is how I feel. <laughs> so the pitch of my voice on the may, if it's may, if it's may, 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 determines if Jesus came, when he came, or if he came at all. 
But little by little, and actually we're here this year, I'm, getting, I'm writing a thesis on the tone of the language because you just can't, me- you can't mess that up on, in your Bible translation. So little by little, we started to kind of learn the language and we began, began to understand the world around us a little better. So when we were living among the people, we learned more than just their language. We learned about their way of life, what brings them joy, what makes them sad, and how they respond in different situations. And one thing that I learned is that the Bakun people adhere to what many call animism or African traditional religion. What we had understood of animism was that basically adherents believe that there are spirits in everything, trees, rocks, and whatnot, and this is not what we found among the Kwakum. They do believe that there are spirits everywhere, but they are mostly the spirits of their deceased ancestors that live among them. One of their core beliefs is that when someone dies, their body goes into the ground, but their spirits stay in the village generally to haunt the living. These spirits are incredibly powerful. They need to be manipulated. They need to be appeased in order to ensure the safety of the village. So they get hungry. They ask for food. So if um, you're eating and some food falls on the ground, the people assume that's actually a spirit that has reached out to get that food and you're obligated to set your food on the ground. They also are said to haunt people at night and scare them. Um, And also, witchcraft is pretty rampant there as well. So basically, there are village witches or sorcerers that are called upon to kill other people, or, and this is all, I'm quoting um, what people have told us, but they're called on to suck out people's blood during the night. And so as you can imagine, our friends live in fear. Uh, They can't touch certain plants because they're afraid that those plants are actually witches that have turned themselves into plants. These witches are said to have the power to transform themselves into animals and hurt and attack people. When they become sick, they assume that it's because somebody paid a witch to put a spell on them. And so at every Bakum funeral, lots are cast in order to see who is responsible for the death of the deceased. We've met maybe one or two Bakum people that reject these beliefs, but outside of them, we're told that this is what everybody believes and everybody practices. This might be surprising because if you were to visit us, you would see church buildings um, among the Bakum, but if you were to step inside the churches, what you would hear is not the gospel. It's not biblical Christianity. You would hear prosperity theology or some type of work salvation. Now Dave's going to share the hardest part of being on the field. Yeah, as we're talking about the mission field, I'm, I'm actually going to call you in a second to be missionaries, so um, just prepare yourselves for that. But um, I wanted to just be really real and just acknowledge that it's not just fun, you know. And I'm sure when you're looking at these pictures, some of you were thinking, wow, I could never do that. Um, and when you're looking at it, um, if I was to ask you, what do you guys imagine would be the hardest part of what we do? You might think about the crickets that were in the big bucket, or uh, you might think about the snakes and things like that. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking when we were going into it. I actually thought the hardest part would be the heat. Um, I'm kind of a big guy. I grew up in Colorado and I don't sleep very well when it's hot. And so I thought that would be the hardest part. And I don't sleep very well in Cameroon. Um, I was right about that. But it was by far not the hardest part of of what we did. Um, By far, the hardest part for us being in Cameroon has has been the people. 
Um, I read a, a book before we left who said it was a, a man who had learned Romans. He had learned what Stacy had learned. He then saw that there were people in the nations that were going to hell that had never heard of Jesus. So he said he was going onto the field to save a good people from a mean God. That was his perspective going out as a missionary. He said, but when he arrived, what he found were monsters of iniquity. And uh, so I read that book before we left, so I was a little bit prepared, but I wasn't prepared at all. Um, what we, we live in a village among people who have never been touched by the gospel. They don't know God. And apart from God, we are not good. And so the, the clearest way you would see this, if you came to visit my village, is that the people are just cruel, um, I am, we share water at our house. We have a spigot outside. There, there wasn't a clean water source, so we share the water at our house. So there's just always people in my yard, and I'm always breaking up fights. I mean, not every day. Maybe once a week I'm going out there, and there's men beating on women. There's mothers beating children. There's boys getting into fights, men getting into fights, just all the time. And the children, for fun, their, their fathers will go out and hunt. And if they kill a mother animal, sometimes they'll bring the baby animal back to the village, and they basically just torture these baby animals animals to death. Uh, this is what they do for fun in the village. And again, I think sometimes when we think of people in Africa or in these places that have been un, unreached at this point, we think of people who are just lacking in resources. And maybe if they just had the resources we have, maybe things would be okay. But that's not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem is not they don't have enough resources, that they don't, aren't able to write or they don't have medicine. Their biggest problem is that they're far from God. And when people are far from God, they don't live in peace with God. And they don't live in peace with one another. And so that has by far been the hardest part for us. And so we're trying to learn their language. We're trying to get to know who they are. And uh, if you'll advance to the slide with a fire, I just want to tell a very quick story. Um, along the way, we've been trying to learn their language and have been unable to communicate the gospel. They don't have a word for grace. They don't have a word for hope. How do you communicate the gospel without these words? And so instead of aiming to, get, to, to share the gospel, really, for this first term, we've been aiming to know their language, but we've been asking that God would allow us to show them love in a way they can understand as well. And uh, just right before we left, we had an experience where we were packing up all our stuff. It was literally the day before we were going to leave the village to come back to the States. And I heard flames, which they burn their fields. That's common, but these sounded like really big flames. And I went out behind our house and there were 20 foot flames coming towards the village, coming straight towards our house, really. So we ran out with machetes and we're chopping back the bush and pushing it back. My house has a tin roof, but most of my neighbors have thatch roofs. And so embers are falling on the thatch roofs. And so we're throwing water up on these houses. And it was just all day, just trying to fight this fire, push it back, get it away from the village. And by the end of the day, praise the Lord, not a single house was burned. Um, we were able to stop it. And the next morning we left. We, were, we went around and said goodbye to everyone and a woman grabbed my hand and pulled me aside and said, hey Dave, you guys have to come back because you are part of our village because you fight fires with us. And so it's just a really neat way. We've been praying that God would allow us to have a way to show them love, even though we can't communicate very well with them. And God gave us, I wouldn't have prayed for fire, you know, coming towards my house. But this is, I see it as a direct answer to prayer. And so while we're talking about the people being the hardest part, we also just realize that, um, that God is a God who answers our prayers. And so we have great hope for the Bakum people because of that. I'm going to skip to the conclusion just because we're out of time for the other stuff. So you can skip to the conclusion. Um, 
You might wonder why we would come here and just share our story with you today. Um, And I'm hoping that you won't walk away just thinking these were really cool stories, but there's actually a few things that I'm hoping that you'll walk away from hearing our stories. And the first thing is that there is a really great need. As you've heard in the statistics, um, there's lots of people who don't have the Bible. And as I've just told you, the, the people who don't have the Bible, who don't know God, are not living in peace with God, and they're not living in peace with others. And Jesus said uh, a long time ago, he said, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I don't know that much has changed since then. Um, just in Cameron alone, there's 270 languages, and about 113 of them have been identified as still vital and having not a single word of the scripture in them. And I know that these are just numbers. I can throw out all bunch, a whole bunch of numbers to you guys, but to me, these are people. These are my neighbors. These are my friends. These are the guy in the market that yells at me every single day. And these are people who need Jesus. These are people who live really hard lives, and most of them die really young And then they spend eternity apart from God. And I know, uh, I'm imagining some of you are in here thinking, maybe even a little bit frustrated that we would have missionaries here and missionaries always come in and and they they act as though the only way you can please God is, is if you go into missions. I know that because that's how I felt when I was sitting in those seats. I know that because when Stacy told Brad Buzer to talk to me about becoming a missionary, that's how I felt. I was like, I can please God working in Hollywood. I can please God as a businessman. And I was frustrated and those things are true. And, um, and you can, and I know many of you will stay here and you will please God working here and being parents and, and working in churches. And I'm so thankful for that. We couldn't be on the field without people that stay here. Um, but at the same time, I just want you to know when, when missionaries are passionate, it's not, it's not because we, we want you to feel guilty. It's not because um, we don't think what you're doing is valid in life. It's just because we see how much need there is. We're the only Bible translation project in the East region of Cameroon right now. And there are, you know, 50 languages or something like that. In Luke 10, when Jesus talked about the harvest being plentiful and uh, the laborers being few, he said, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that's my biggest goal for you all walking away from this is that you would go out and that you would pray. This is a command from Jesus that we are to pray and not just pray, but that we are to pray earnestly that God would send out more laborers into the harvest and then also, um, I, w- I would ask that you would pray and ask God if you might be one of the answers to that prayer. Second, um, I just wanted to say if you can observe from the way that God has, has brought me to the path of missions is that God leads us as we pursue him. Um, for some missionaries, they have like when they're a kid, they just have this experience and they know for sure they're going to be a missionary when they grow up. But for most of us, it's just a process. And for me, it's a, it's a process where I realized that I, I had to repent of sin and I had, to, I had to read my Bible every day. And there's so many decisions we make in life that are, we don't know what we should do and the, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what we do, but there's so many decisions that God tells us exactly what to do. And I've just found that when we're faithful in those things, um, God leads us. And uh, I, was, I prepared this whole thing you know, a week ago, but this morning I was reading in 2 Timothy, and I'm gonna just close on this and Stacy will pray. Um, this is just what God led me to lo- in my devotions this morning. He's, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. My prayer for you guys is that you would be useful in God's house, that you would be useful for God's kingdom. And I know for sure that the only way that that's gonna happen is if you cleanse yourselves from what is dishonorable. If there's sin in your life that you're not repenting of, repent of it and seek to obey God and everything that you know for sure he wants you to do. And I know for sure that he will prepare you for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you very much for your word. Thank you for how it changes our lives, God. Thank you that we can worship and praise you because you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And God, we just think of that long list, Lord, that um, was spread out here in chapel, God, of, of hundreds, Lord, of people groups, Lord, that are without revelation, without special revelation. And God, we just pray that that list would get shorter every year, God. And we pray that you might send out students from this college, Lord, to go out and translate your words so that people might praise you. In Christ's name, amen.